Chapel family, everybody's doing good this morning? Yeah, it sounds like it. Man, I was looking at these graduates. You know, our oldest daughter, Alicia, is graduating. But I looked at them and I said, man, I know the parents and the kids. These kids are so much smarter than their parents. Like, and it doesn't take much, but they are much smarter, much more better looking than all of their parents. So it's good to know that the next generation behind us is better than the current generation. A lot of good things going on. It is graduation week, so a lot of good stuff going on with our kids and our next generation. And I'm going to share a message kind of towards everybody, but focused on helping them. So if you're Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and I don't know if you remember, but it was a long time ago for me. It was almost 22 years ago this week that I graduated from high school. I thought that as soon as you graduated, it meant you were an adult and you were as free as you possibly could be. I remember we graduated on a Friday night. We left for Panama City Beach for senior trip on Friday night. And I remember us thinking, you ever seen the movie Braveheart where they cry out freedom? I thought that's what it was, freedom. Then I realized freedom meant bills and responsibility. Then I cried out, I want to go back to high school. And you know, there's a bunch of movies on just coming of age of what it means to kind of go from a child to a teenager to adulthood and this tension. And, and really when you think about coming of age, it's this wrestling match. This wrestling match between my family's identity and what my personal identity is going to be. And like there's this wrestling match between those two things, between my dreams and chasing after those things and the, the responsibilities that I have for my own personal life and my, my tension between my old friends and my new friends, my past and my future, trying to figure out who I'm going to be and who my parents told me. There's all these wrestling matches that are going on between our values versus our family's values. And so when you're going from teenage to adulthood, it's this wrestling match that I think is actually a good wrestling match. I think it's good to wrestle with it. I think tension is a good thing many times because as there's tension, many times it pulls you in a direction where you actually discover who you truly are. Many times once you give up in the wrestling match is when you lose sight of who you actually are. In Genesis chapter 30, I believe it is, there's a wrestling match, or 32, there's a wrestling match between Jacob and God. And Jacob's been at a point in his life where it's really a transitional moment in his life between who he used to be or chasing after his own dreams and then him discovering what God's dream for him was going to be. This is the middle of the night. He began to wrestle with this God. And as he began to wrestle, he was wrestling with him. And the angel asked him, or God asked him what his name was. And he said, no, my name is Jacob. And the angel says, no, no, your name is Israel. See, there's this wrestling match between what his parents named him or what his identity was with his parents and the identity that God had for him. There was this wrestling match between these two identities. And as he's wrestling, all of a sudden he starts to lose. And it says God touched him in his hip and he began to be put out of socket. He began to have a limp and there was brokenness there. And then before he left, it says God blessed him. See, there's a blessing in wrestling with God. There's a blessing when you encounter God and you wrestle between what you want and what God wants and you let God win. There's a blessing between when you bring your pride to God and he defeats you and you walk away broken, but you walk away encountering the mercy of a living God. And I believe one of the downfalls to Christianity in America is we've learned through cultural convenience to stop wrestling with God. And since we've stopped wrestling with God, we just give in to our greatest desires. Instead of taking our desires to God and letting him wrestle away our temporal desires, letting God give us eternal desires that carry weight. Instead of letting our kids walk in brokenness 
and encountering the mercy of Jesus. We try to protect them from anything and everything that might harm them or chip them or break them in any sort of way. So now they understand the parents' love, but they don't understand the mercy of God. And I think that's why 66% of kids that go to high school, in high school, they go to church at least one year of their life, turn away from God when they leave home. And the reason being is because they never learn to wrestle with who God is. They never learn to wrestle and encounter the living God. One person said, they're first-generation believers. As first-generation believers, they experience the gospel of Jesus. Like for me and Toya, we're first-generation believers. We experience the mercy of God in brokenness, in despair, in desperation, in failure, in sin, and mistake. It was in that moment that we wrestled with God and he touched us, we experienced his mercy, we encountered his goodness, and we walked away with a blessing. But then the second generation, many times they don't experience the gospel, they inherit the gospel from their mom and dad. And as they inherit the gospel, they get preoccupied with the blessings of the gospel, but they're not acquainted with the God of the gospel. So they they reap the benefits of the parents living in mercy and grace and prosperity and favor, but they haven't encountered the wrestling match with the God of the gospel. And then what happens many times in the third generation, since now you're going from experience to inherit, then they abandon the gospel in order for social convenience and acceptance. Meaning I'd rather be accepted by all these people out here than to have to wrestle with the God of my forefathers. And I think something happens when we learn to wrestle. I think Jacob went from it being the God of Abraham and Isaac to all of a sudden it turned into the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, my kids can't encounter God. They can't have the God of Bobby and Toya and then Alicia until Alicia begins to wrestle with God herself. But we have to get rid of our parenting of which we jump in to rescue our children. As soon as they start wrestling with God, as soon as they hit a hard point in life, as soon as they start struggling just a little bit, as parents, we jump in to save them ourselves. And if we save them, God never can. And I think what's going to happen in this next generation, if parents, we can understand, if we just pull back just a little bit, And let our kids experience the wounding of God, they'll experience the mercy of God. And if they experience the mercy of God, it starts a whole other generational blessing. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with this struggle with the church at Philippi. This church is a church he helped start. It's a church that he's writing from jail and prison, waiting to be killed for the gospel. And he sees them beginning to struggle with some things as a church. He sees them struggling with legalism. And licentiousness. Licentiousness means living without any rules or law, meaning the, God, the grace is there. We don't need the law anymore. We can do whatever we want to. And they're, they're struggling between are we legalist or perfectionist or can we just do whatever we want to? They're struggling between joy and suffering. They're struggling between all these different dynamics. And Paul writes this letter to the Philippians and he's encouraged them to wrestle, wrestle with the tension, wrestle with grace wrestle with mercy because the longer you wrestle the more likely God's going to actually win so if we would stand to your feet as we read Philippians chapter 3 together I'm going to start in verse uh, 12 it says this it says not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect now he's writing this to them because many of them thought they were already perfected 
So he must have been writing to a bunch of 18-year-olds that just graduated high school and thought they'd arrived. He's saying, listen, I'm the apostle, and I'm not perfect yet. So why are you arguing about who's perfect? Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So just with that one sentence, he's telling them, listen, no, we're not perfect, but yeah, we're going to keep on trying. Just because you're not perfect doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be. Just because you're not living up to the standard yet doesn't mean you shouldn't push as hard as you can to try it. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing. Everybody say one thing. One thing thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining toward or forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature Think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true. Everybody say hold true. Hold true to what you've already attained. Meaning, don't let go of what you've attained to grab a hold of something you haven't reached yet. Brothers, keep joining me and imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even more with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Father, we thank you for the struggle. We thank you for the tension. We thank you that you're a God, that you are not scared to wrestle with your children, to wrestle away wrong ideas, to wrestle away sinful desires, and to wound us to a place where we can walk away with a blessing. Father, I thank you for the mercy that finds us in our brokenness, but sends us off with the power of grace carrying us from glory to glory. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Paul is dealing with the struggle. He's dealing with these believers who think they've arrived and he knows he's about to leave. It's almost like Paul is saying, before I die, one more thing I want to tell you before I die. If you, if you were covering Philippians, you could say that one more thing Paul wants to say to these people, his brothers, these sisters at Philippi, before I leave, one more thing that will help you in this tension. And real quick, I think there's four things that he shares in this scripture. Verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know what I think Paul is telling the church? I think what he's telling them is God cares more about who you're becoming than what you do. God cares more about who you're becoming than what you do. He doesn't tell them to go figure out what you're supposed to do. He says, no, no, listen, you may not be perfect, but the goal is you keep on pressing on until you become perfect. Later he says, you may not be perfect until Jesus comes back, but if he comes back, he should find you pursuing perfection. He should come back, find you pursuing holiness. He should come back, finding you pursuing being more like Jesus every single day of your life. The problem, once kids turns 18, is they start thinking about, what am I supposed to do? 
What job am I supposed to have? What career am I supposed to have? What college am I supposed to go to? Who am I supposed to be? And once you start thinking about all those other things, you start pushing the wrong things back and grabbing hold of the front things. He says, I'm not as concerned about which college you go to. I'm not concerned of what degree you choose. I'm not concerned with which career path you choose. I'm not even that concerned with what what fraternity or sorority you choose. God says, I'm more concerned with who you are becoming. But many times as parents, we put more effort into what our kids do than who they're becoming. And the parenting technique is, who are you becoming? In Daniel 11.32, one of my favorite scriptures says this. Uh, it says, starting in uh, verse 11, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. I call that no be do. God says, those who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. Those who know their God, those who have wrestled with their God, those who have encountered their God, those who know who their God is, those who that know who their God is intimately, then they shall be strong. My being comes out of my knowing who God is. And I know him, I shall be strong. I shall be bold. I shall be courageous. I be, shall be full of faith. I shall be strong. Then I will do great exploits. It's this simple. It's you know God, then you be who he calls you to be, then you do. The problem in our culture is we're so concerned with what we do, we never take time to figure out who God is. We force our kids to figure out what are you going to do, who are you going to be, what are you going to And the thing is, if you start with the knowing, God will reveal who you are. Your identity is based in him, not this. Once you start focusing on this, your identity changes to what you do instead of who he is. Once you know who God is, then you can be everything he's called you to be. And once you become everything he's called you to be, then you'll know his will. Then you'll do exactly what he's called you to do. Adults, we do the same thing. We find our identity in what we do instead of who we know. My identity is not in my ministry. My identity is not in my career. My identity is not in my job. My identity is not in my, my degrees. My identity is not what I do. My identity is in who I know. And I know my Father. And if all hell breaks loose, if I lose everything, I'm, I pray this prayer like Job. God, you're my one thing. If I lose everything, if I lose my family, if I lose my house, if I lose my job, if I lose my everything, and I still have you, I've got more than enough. Because like Job, if I know you, I can start from scratch and still end up where I'm supposed to be. See, knowing precedes doing. And students, get this. God cares more about who you're becoming than what you do. You can have all the accolades in the world, and if you don't know him, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. You can have the most money you've ever dreamed about. You can have TikTok fame. And have a soul that's depressed. It's amazing to me how many of these social media influencers are committing suicide. Because it doesn't matter how much fame you get. If you're not famous with him, you're not famous with anybody. God cares more about who you're becoming than what you do. Because God has already prepared the way. When you think about the, the majesty of God, the destiny of God, 
He's already prepared the way for you. He's prepared a place for you. He's prepared a, a family for you. He's prepared a destiny. He's already prepared the way. It's not a matter of me trying to figure out the way. It's not a matter of me trying to, to prepare my own way. It's not a matter of me trying to figure it all out. God is trying to prepare me. Like when you think about when you're trying to prepare your career path, your college, you're trying to, God's already prepared it. But he can't take you there until you become who he's called you to be. He can't get you to do the great exploits until he gets you to know him so he can prepare you to handle the great exploits he wants to give you. And I know I've joked about this, but in our household, I'm a quick and easy type of eater. If you go to the drive-thru, I'm picking a number two or number three. I'm picking it. It's simple. Toya, on the other hand, it ain't that simple. She pulls up in Zaxby's. She thinks he's at Roots Chris. So if I order my number two, and so usually I'm driving. She's in the passenger seat. Babe, I want them to give me a number three, but take off the tomato, no mayonnaise, add this sauce, take this out. I'm like, babe, like, you need a real interpreter. I can't interpret this. And what happens is we, we pull up. They said, well, pull up. I'll pay for the food at the drive-thru. They'll say, sir, I need you to pull forward and wait. I'm like, Look in the rearview mirror. The last four cars behind us already pulled around us. They're, they're full. They've then stopped and got ice cream. I'm still waiting. Why? They're preparing her food. Mine is cooked to go. Hers is cooked to order. But what happens is hers is fresh. And hers is exactly how she wants it. See, you may wait. See, let somebody preach one time. It's exactly how she wants. See, you may wait, but when you're waiting to do what you feel like you're called to do, it's actually a good place to be because God is preparing you to handle what he wants to give you. And the longer you wait, the better it's going to be. The longer you wait, the more preparation. When you look at the Bible, when you look at Abraham, how long he waited for the promised son, and that son was exactly who God wanted to be. When you look at Jesus, he waited 30 years to start his ministry. When you look throughout the Bible, they waited. Why? Because there's blessing in the preparation. And God is preparing you. Because this generation needs a group of believers, a group of young people who are more about this than they are this. And you are the generation. But then he continues. He says this in verse 13 to 15. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, one thing, everybody say one thing. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. What he's saying is you can do anything if you stop doing everything. You can do anything if you stop doing everything. He says this one thing I do. I think if anyone was successful in the Bible... The Apostle Paul is the guy. He played in more churches. He wrote more books in the Bible than any other person in the Bible. Yet, he still traveled. He ministered. He did everything. He was successful. And he's saying, I didn't try to do everything. He didn't try to go to Jews and Gentiles. He just went to the Gentiles. Paul was focused. See, when you're focused, you can accomplish so much more. In our day and age where everybody wants to do it, we're so scatterbrained and distracted, we're not actually accomplishing anything anymore. But if you realize if you stop doing everything, you can accomplish anything. 
Paul says, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead. I don't think Paul is saying forget everything. I think what Paul is saying is forget the right things. Because later, later on, Paul says, hold on to what you've attained. So he's not saying forget everything. He's just saying forget the right things. I heard Mark Batters say one time, we tend to forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget. But we forget the things we should remember and we remember the things we should forget. I'll put it like this. So many times in, in church world and, and, and being a toys experience through life that you can do tons of stuff for people in ministry. Like you can be at the graveside of their family. You could be when their children are born, you're there at the hospital. You can be there in a tough time through a divorce. But one time you don't make it to something. Don't forget about all the th- times you poured into them to remember the one time you didn't. I can look at marriages, and what happens many times in marriages when they're broken is they forget what they should remember. They forget their vows. They forget how much they love their spouse when they committed their life to them. They forget all the good years. They forget all the sacrifice. They forget all the commitment. But they'll remember every little small fight. See, we have this messed up memory that it seems like the more negative it is, the more we remember it, but the more positive it is, the more we forget it. And I think what Paul is saying here is forget the right things and remember the correct things. He's saying maybe we should have a holy memory and a holy forgetfulness. Meaning I can't move forward in my walk with Jesus if I keep remembering all the things I failed in in the past. Like I can't pursue perfection if I keep living in the shame of my failures in the past. But in the same way, I can't pursue Jesus if I let go of the values and the foundations my family has given me. I can't grab a hold of my future, my purpose, and my destiny if I let go of those who have created a new, a new floor for me to stand upon. See, we need to have a holy memory that forgets the bad and remembers the good. And if we do that, we can focus on the one thing. One person said, everything does not matter equally. When you pursue in life, everything does not matter equally. There can only be one most important thing. Many things are important, but only one thing can be the most important. And I'm telling you, Paul is saying this. This one thing I do is I reach for the upward call of Christ Jesus. As I reach towards Jesus, if I reach towards knowing him and becoming like him, everything else will fall into place. As I pursue him and chase after him, that's my focus. See, if I focus on Jesus, my will, my destiny, my purpose, my identity, my future spouse, my future kids, everything I need is in Jesus. But we try to compartmentalize where we say, well, Jesus is my church experience, but I need to go chase after my dreams. I need to go chase after relationships. I need to go chase after fulfillment. I need to go chase after identity. And no, Jesus is all those things. And focus is cutting out some things in order to see the correct things. See, when you focus on something, you're not looking at everything. You're looking at one thing. And I think as you look at the one thing of Jesus, it changes everything. So my encouragement would be, don't chase after everything. Pursue the one thing and let who you pursue give you everything you need. And Matthew 6.33 says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Meaning, don't seek after everything. Seek after the one thing, and then everything else will be added unto you. 
It's interesting, you skip down to verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. For sufficient is today for its own trouble. It's amazing how anxiety cranks up in our day and age. But the scripture where he says, quit pursuing everything, pursue the one thing, the kingdom of heaven, and he'll take care of all the other things. Then he hits right onto anxiety. Maybe our anxiety is not just, I think it's a mental health thing, I think it's a spiritual thing, but maybe it's because as believers, we want to chase everything and then get God to bless everything instead of chasing after God and let him give us everything. Maybe if I seek him first and seek after him, he will give me everything else. But instead of seeking after him, we try to seek after this, seek after my identity, seek after my dreams, seek after my career, seek after my spouse, seek after my family. And then we're spinning in circles and saying, but where's God? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so stressed out? It's because you're seeking in circles and God is saying, just come home, son. Just seek after me. It's almost like, I think we forget he's the king. He says, seek first the kingdom. See, our God isn't some self-help, self-help guru. He's not somebody who's just going to help you through your stress or your emotions or your depression. He says, come here. And when you sit in his lap, you're not sitting in his lap on a lazy boy. You're sitting in his lap on a throne. He's the king of the universe. And when you're seeking his face, when you're looking to his eyes, anything you need, you need a career, he's got it. You need fulfillment, he's got it. You need identity, he's going to tell you, you are my son. In you I'm well pleased. He's going to tell you what you need to hear. He's going to take care of every wound. He's going to take care of every sickness. He's going to take care of every disease. If you need relationships, he has the perfect spouse for everybody. But you won't find them looking for them. You only find them looking for him. He says, seek after me. And then Philippians 4.13, which was Marissa and Nancy's life verse from last week, says this, I can do all things, all things through him, through the one thing that I'm chasing after, through the one who strengthens me, through him who strengthens See, I can accomplish all things only as I pursue him. I can't pursue all things and him at the same time. We have a choice to make. The third Part is in, in verse 16, it says, only let us hold true to what we've attained. I think he's saying this, live by your values and everything else will fall into place. See, I heard one pastor at a pastor's minister's meeting and he said this, talk about the scripture. He says, as you're reaching for a new thing, don't let go of the old thing. He says, we see this with churches. Churches are trying to change and be more relevant, and they'll try to grab a hold of a new model or a new style, and they'll let go of all the good. Same thing with many kids. They're reaching for a new career or a new dream, and they let go of everything their families have built for them. See, these values are things that endure forever. These values are things that should endure through generation to generation. He's saying, hold on to the foundations that you build your life on. And, and for me, I think many times I was talking to a friend of mine, I think he's in North Carolina. His son is graduating, Alicia's graduating. I said, man, I f- just feel for these kids. The world is telling them they stand at this fork in the middle of the road. They have to choose their own personal 
dreams and ambitions and desires or the direction they feel like their family has for them to go or even God. And so that they despise God, they rebel because they think, I don't want to go the way God wants me to go. I want to go experience life for myself. And they stand in this anxiety of trying to figure out their entire life by the time they're 18. I'm telling you, you won't figure out your entire life by the time you die. And we tell them, have your life plan. Toy, a young boy came to date one of our daughters. She said, what's your life plan? I said, baby, he's 16. She's like, well, he's not good enough to date our daughter. He may not be, but I don't know my life plan. And so these kids are looking, and I had this vision that it's not a fork in the road that kids are at. So they feel like they have to leave their family's identity in order to discover their own identity. And it's not you're leaving to go find your own way. It's that as a family, we, we've built a foundation that is our ceiling, that is now a foundation of values for our kids, not to live the life we live, but this foundation, they can build whatever house they want to. They can build it wherever they want to. They can build it in Florence, Alabama, Nashville, Tennessee. They can build it in Auburn, anywhere but Tuscaloosa. They can build it, they can build a modern house, an old house. Their life, they can build their life with Jesus however they want to. But we've given them these values that are a foundation that will be strong. It will endure every single storm of life. But so many times, kids think they got to build their own foundations. So they get away from their foundations, then they go backwards and have to discover values all for themselves again. I'm telling you, as you go pursue your dreams, make sure you hold on to the foundations. Because as you chase interests, Simon Sinek says it so well. He says, you make decisions by values or interest. He said, your values will endure forever. Your values are your why. Like, why do you do things? Like, we come to church not because we're pastors. We come to church because this is the house of God. And God saved us. If we're on vacation, we're going to worship him. If we're out of town, we're going to worship I don't come to church because I'm the pastor. I come to church because I love Jesus. That's a value of ours. I tithe not because I'm on staff at the church. I tithe because Jesus saved me when I had nothing. I sowed seed in his kingdom. He's blessed every seed I've sown in the ground. There's wise, there's values in my life. They don't change because the economy changes. They're a foundation. Those are the whys. But when your interest, when you start making decisions about your interests, your interest change. As Pastor Dylan said, your interest, you can wear skinny jeans one year and baggy jeans the next. Your interests change. Your interest in career may change. Your interest in where you may live may change. But if you make your decisions based on your values, your values never change. When you keep making decisions based on your interest, it creates anxiety because it's always shifting sand. It's the desire in my heart. It's, it's I feel like I'm supposed to do this. I feel like I'm supposed to go here. I feel like I'm supposed to try this. I feel and I feel and I feel and I feel. And when you do that, you go through anxiety because your interests keep changing. But if you make your decisions based on your values, it's a solid foundation for you to build whatever you want to in the name of Jesus. And Paul gives these pointers to the church, but then he gives, he kind of changes tones as he gets into verse 15, I think, or 17. He says this. It's a warning to the church. He said, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Meaning, don't keep your eyes, don't be imitating people that don't walk in the example. 
For many of whom I have told you, often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end, everybody say the end. Their end is in destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Like, this is powerful. Paul is preparing them, and he says, whoa, whoa, before I leave, I need to give you a warning. And this is the warning. You will become who you pay attention to. You will become who you pay attention to. It doesn't matter if you have the one thing. It doesn't matter if you hold on to your values. It doesn't matter because the power of community will trump the power of values. The power of community will trump the power of your dreams. The power of community will trump the power of your self-discipline. The power of community will trump your strong will. The power of community is powerful. And he says, watch out for these people. Imitate us, but watch them. And what he's saying is, don't pay attention to who they are now. Pay attention to the fruit of their lives. See, when you're young, you pick your relationships based on charisma. They're cool. I'm here to tell you, there's people that was cool when I was in high school. They ain't cool anymore. There's people that was cool when I was in the Air Force who ain't cool anymore. There's people that were cool when I was in college that ain't cool anymore. There's people in my 30s that I thought was really cool that ain't cool anymore. There's pastors that were celebrities I thought were really cool that aren't cool anymore. See, cool wanes. And cool has a fruit. And in here it says, and their fruit was destruction. See, we can be so short-sighted. We look at somebody right now and we say, man, I wish I could be like him. Man, I wish I could be like her. Man, I wish I could preach like him. Man, I wish I was as smart as her. Man, I wish I was as pretty as her. Man, I wish I was as athletic as him. Man, I, and you start saying, I wish I could be like them. And you start paying attention to them. Paul says, watch out. Here's a warning. Pay attention to who you pay attention to. Because the more attention you give them, the more likely you are to be like them. Paul actually says in Hebrews 13, he says this. He says, but remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, Consider the outcome or consider the end of their way of life and imitate their faith. I don't look at where people are now. I look at how they end. I'm at a stage of life. I could care less how successful you are in your mid-ages. I could care less how rich you get. I'm looking at the end of your life and how many people are lifting up your legacy that I am your success. Paul says, I want you to look at the end of our lives. I'm in prison writing you this letter, and I'm still worshiping Jesus. I'm in prison awaiting my death, and I'm still sharing the gospel. Pay attention to the end. Pay attention to the fruit, and it'll show you the root. He said, pay attention to who you pay attention to. Everyone in this room, we have people we pay attention to, whether it's celebrities, whether it's online. If you remember, especially when you were younger, the music you listen to, the celebrities you paid attention to, you started to dress like. You started to wear the clothes they would wear. You started to maybe talk like them. It's amazing. In church world, we used to have this joke that in churches, if there's a really good preacher, everybody in that church started dressing like that preacher and trying to preach like that preacher while they're paying too much attention to the man. 
Jacob, before he wrestled with God, there was a situation where he was trying to try to wed his wife. And he said, give me these sheep. And he says, okay, you can have the spotted sheep. So Laban took the spotted sheep out, and he realized that he took these sheep, and he took some sticks, and he took the, the bark off these sticks and put them in the feeding troughs of these sheep. And these st- sticks were now striped with white. They're sticks with white stripes on it. He put those sticks in front of the sheep. And as the sheep would come and, and drink or eat, they would see those sticks that were right in front of their eyes. They were paying attention to these sticks that were right in between their eyes. Every day. The sheep would wake up, they'd come to that trough, and they'd see these sticks that were with these white stripes. The next day they'd come and there'd be the sticks and they would eat and drink and those stripes be right in front of their eyes. My question would be, what's in front of your eyes every single day? Who's in front of your eyes every single day? As these sheep, every single day, it was these sticks with the bark torn off, with these white stripes, every single day. And as the sheep started to reproduce, they started reproducing. Even though they were black sheep, they started reproducing black sheep with white spots and stripes. Why? They were breeding and becoming what they were paying attention to. So my question is, when you wake up in the morning and you go to eat and drink, what are you paying attention to? Are you looking at social media and TikTok? If you are, you will become what you're paying attention to. If you turn on Fox News, you will become Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson. If you turn on CNN, you will become CNN. If you turn on political affiliates, you'll become political affiliates. If you turn on Cardi B, God forbid, you'll become Cardi B. If you turn on ESPN, you'll become ESPN. Whatever's before your eyes, you'll become. Paul says, warning, pay attention to who you're paying attention to. Pay attention. You will become. That's why Paul goes back to the one thing. The one thing. Look at Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. If you look at Jesus, you will become who he's called you to be and you'll accomplish everything he's called you to accomplish. Pay attention to who you pay attention to. Pay attention what stirs your heart for jealousy. Because what stirs your heart for jealousy is trying to draw you to become just like it. Pay attention to who you pay attention to. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a quick moment. God, we thank you for the wrestle. God, I thank you for inviting me and Toy into the wrestling match with the almighty creator. In that moment, Father, of brokenness, we experience your mercy but we also experience your blessings. Father, I pray for every single family, every single believer in this room. Father, I specifically pray for every single high school and college graduate, even sixth grade graduate, Father, that you invite them into the wrestling match, that you invite them into the struggle between faith and doubt. You invite them into the struggle between personal identity and family identity. Father, you invite them in and let them wrestle. Father, I pray for parents to let go of their kids so you can grab a hold of them. Father, I pray that you help them understand the values, the foundation that their families, that their church has given them, Father. And I pray they don't run away from the foundation, but they build upon the foundation to build lives that reflect your glory to all those around them in this generation. Father, I pray for the warning to help them to pay attention to who they pay attention to. Father, I pray when they go to bed at night, you give them visions of your face. 
Father, when they wake up in the morning, I pray your face is the first one they seek. Father, we rebuke every wrong face, every wrong person. Father, we pray that you surround them with a powerful community of believers that point them to the one who can help them accomplish the all. Real quick, at every head bowed, every eye closed. In this room, real quick, he said, you know what? Today, Pastor Brown was talking about the love of a father, love that needed to be experienced. And maybe this morning you're saying, today's my day. God has been speaking to me, maybe throughout the week, maybe in the service, that maybe today is the day you say yes to Jesus. You say no to yourself, no to your past, and yes to a future in him. We call that repentance, where you, you turn away from where you've been and you turn towards Jesus to make him your one thing. That's you. Just one quick moment. Not going to have you come forward. Not going to have you stand up. I just want you to raise your hand right where you are so I can pray with you. Anybody in this room, you said, today's my day. God has been working on my heart, and I want to say yes to Jesus.